High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next student visionaries of the year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in this seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org students. That's lls.org slash students. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry, built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. And with available features like heated seats and a multimedia touchscreen, you can stay connected in comfort and style. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle, from the hip and agile sedan to the sporty hatchback. There's a dependable Corolla built just for you. Plus, both Camrys and Corollas are available in hybrid models. So no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and affordably. And right now, your local Toyota dealer has more vehicles in stock and is making delivery on new vehicles almost every day. So visit your local Toyota dealer. And check out amazing national sales event deals on Camrys, Corollas, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Offers end April 1st. Toyota, let's go places. Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secrets and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century, part of the Panoply Network. I'm your host, Karina Longworth. Today, we're revisiting a story that we first told as part of our MGM series in 2015. It's the story of Jean Harlow. In last week's episode on Thelma Todd, we talked a little bit about the ways in which Thelma's look and function within early talkie comedies prefigured Jean Harlow's more significant stardom. One important difference between the two women is that Thelma Todd often played the straight woman. Though Jean Harlow's image hewed to the template of bubbly, curvaceous blonde that Thelma Todd had earlier popularized, very early in her career, Harlow was given starring roles in films that allowed her to be the butt of the joke while also controlling the narrative. There was also a difference in the way Todd and Harlow used their very similar blonde beauty. Thelma Todd was sexy, but Jean Harlow was a sex symbol. 
and she was arguably the first and best sex symbol comedian of the early sound film era. And while Thelma Todd's death was tragic, and no matter what you believe about how she died was almost definitely preventable, Harlow's death at the age of 26 is a prime example of the paradox of the Hollywood blonde, in which a tragic demise somehow seems inevitable. Branded as the quote-unquote platinum bombshell, Harlow's image was of an earthbound goddess. Her unreal cloud of white hair, ample curves and pale skin, evoking wealth and vitality out of reach for most mortals. And yet, inside, she was slowly going to seed. By the end, she had a mouthful of infected gums, and her kidneys had deteriorated past the ability to support life, thanks to a childhood disease. Hollywood didn't kill Jean Harlow. The seed was planted long before she became a star. But being part of the early star system did give her every reason to ignore what was going on inside her in order to maintain the perfect platinum image. An image which has long outlived Harlow herself, in part because we never saw it age. We're revisiting the Jean Harlow story today, not just because she is one of classical Hollywood's most significant blondes, but also because the season-long story we're telling wouldn't make sense without Harlow's inclusion. She is the crucial building block between the 1920s and early 30s actresses that we've already covered and the blondes of the 1940s, who we'll begin to discuss next week. And Harlow was a major influence on Marilyn Monroe, who will become a major character in this series as it continues. So join us, won't you, as we flash back to the story of Jean Harlow. This episode is brought to you by Mubi, a curated streaming service dedicated to elevating great cinema from around the globe. From iconic directors to emerging auteurs, there is always something new to discover. With Mubi, each and every film is hand-selected, so you can explore incredible movies, streaming anytime, anywhere. This month in U.S. theaters, Mubi is releasing a new documentary from Academy Award winner Kevin McDonald, High and Low, John Galliano. It's charting the rise and fall story of the fashion designer John Galliano, who was one of the most successful names in couture until his career abruptly ended in 2011. Featuring conversations with Naomi Campbell, Kate Moss, Penelope Cruz, Charlize Theron, Anna Wintour, and more. High and Low, John Galliano is coming to select theaters across the U.S. on March 8th. For showtimes and tickets, visit Mubi.com slash high and low. And to stream the best of cinema, you can try Mubi free for 30 days at Mubi.com slash YMRT. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash YMRT for a whole month of great cinema for free. Jean Harlow was Harlene Carpenter's mother's name. The first Jean Harlow had been a great beauty who dreamed of her own movie stardom. In 1924, two years after Mother Jean divorced Harlene's father, a wealthy Kansas City dentist named Mont Carpenter, Mom and the Baby, as Harlene was called by friends and family from her birth until her death, 
moved to Los Angeles to advance the mother's Hollywood ambitions. Harlene was enrolled in a ritzy private school, where her classmates included the kids of Cecil B. DeMille, Louis B. Mayer, and Douglas Fairbanks. Mayer's daughter Irene would remember that even at age 13, her classmate Harlene had a certain way about her. She managed to make the sailor blouses of their school uniforms look sexy. It was clear even then that the blonde preteen had something that people liked to look at. But Mama Jean couldn't find work as an actress. At age 34, she had missed her opportunity to impress an industry that fetishized youth. And after two years, with no income forthcoming, mother and daughter were forced to return to Kansas City, where Mother Jean soon hooked up with Marino Bello, a sleazy Italian guy who already had a wife. But not for long. In December 1926, Bello's wife filed for divorce on the grounds that her husband had, quote, repeatedly struck and beaten her. This left Bello free to marry the elder Jean Harlow, which he did a month later. Harlene's mother moved with her new husband to Chicago, and 16-year-old Harlene dropped out of high school to follow. She soon had a beau of her own, Chuck McGrew, a 20-year-old orphan and heir to a small fortune. In September 1927, McGrew made Harlene Carpenter his teenage bride, and shortly thereafter, he turned 21 and received the first six-figure chunk of his trust fund. With no need to work, Harlene and her husband mostly just drank. By January 1928, after a Christmas celebration that lasted for several drunken days, the couple decided to change location and sailed to Los Angeles on the Panama Canal. They moved into a new house in Beverly Hills, where Harlene began hosting the luncheons and teas typical of her society set. A guest at one of these day parties would be a would-be actress named Rosalie Roy. At the end of the afternoon, Rosalie announced that she had to head out to an appointment on the Fox lot, and Harlene offered to give Rosalie a ride. While her friend was in her meeting, Harlene stood by her car waiting so that she could give Rosalie a ride home when she was done. Three Fox executives, walking across the lot, spotted this gorgeous blonde and started talking to her. When Harlene told these men that she wasn't an actress, and in fact had never really even thought about acting, they thought she was playing hard to get. What gorgeous, glamorous girl, hanging out on a Hollywood studio lot in 1928, didn't want to be a movie star? Harlene, perhaps, was playing hard to get in one sense. She told the people at Fox that her name was Jean Harlow. When the phone rang a few days later with an offer for work for a Miss Harlow, Harlene first told the caller that they had the wrong number. She had forgotten that Miss Harlow was her. Harlene still had no real ambitions, but when her mother, the original Jean Harlow, got wind of what was going on, she stepped into action to manage her daughter's career, transferring all of her own thwarted ambitions onto this new Jean. Fueled by her mother's aggressions, in just a couple of months, Harlene signed a contract with producer Hal Roach, and soon she started appearing in Laurel and Hardy shorts. Within a few months, around her 18th birthday, Harlene asked to be released from her contract because her husband didn't want her to be an actress. But just two months after that, Harlene left her husband, Chuck McGrew. 
Both of these things seem to have been done at the insistence of Mother Jean, who believed that you didn't settle for the first opportunity, personal or professional, that came around. She believed her daughter needed to shake off what she already had in order to get more. Now, without a rich husband, Harleen needed movie work in order to support herself. She struggled for many months until she was cast in a small part in the Clara Bow film, The Saturday Night Kid. Clara Bow was Paramount's reigning sex symbol of the 1920s, but she was having trouble transitioning to talkies. She was also getting older and heavier, and when Harleen arrived on set in a black crochet dress, which made it very apparent that she did not believe in wearing underwear, Bo was candid about her insecurities, reportedly saying, Who's gonna see me next to her? The actor cast as Bo's romantic interest, James Hall, certainly saw Bo's co-star. Hall and Harlow developed an on-set romance, but after the shooting of The Saturday Night Kid, they went their separate ways. She took a bit part in a picture called Weak and Willing, and he went back to the film he had been working on off and on since 1927, a World War I romantic aviation epic called Hell's Angels. Hell's Angels was the passion project and money pit of Howard Hughes, who in 1929 was only just starting to amass a reputation. He was 24 years old, and he had arrived in Hollywood four years earlier with a modest inherited oil drilling fortune in tow, determined to make a name for himself in the movies. Howard Hughes was not yet the Howard Hughes that you think that you know. He was not yet a billionaire, not yet a record-setting aviator. He was only just starting to impress as a ladies' man— And he was only notably eccentric in that he had already announced his intention to succeed in Hollywood without letting the Hollywood establishment tell him what to do. By 1929, Howard Hughes had been funneling his own money into Hell's Angels for two years. Any upstart independent filmmaker from Texas with no directorial experience or training and the willingness to throw a lot of good money after bad would probably have been made fun of by the Hollywood elite. But with Hell's Angels, Hughes was really earning his reputation as a laughingstock. Hughes was, by various reports, the third or fourth director on the film, after having fired the others and eventually deciding he could do a better job himself. At least two pilots died attempting to execute the groundbreaking aerial stunts Hughes himself had designed. And in mid-1929, Hell's Angels was facing a new crisis. The film had been shot as a silent... But over the two years that it had been in production, silent films had been phased out almost completely. Hughes finally decided that he needed to scrap everything except for the aerial footage and reshoot the film with spoken dialogue. But Greta Neeson, the Norwegian actress who had been cast as the British sex bomb in the center of the film's love triangle between the characters played by Ben Lyons and James Hall spoke English with an untenably thick Scandinavian accent. And so, by the time Hall returned to the production for yet more filming, Hughes was on the hunt for a new actress for the role. Six months into his hunt, Hall ran into Harlow on the Metropolitan Studios lot, and he got an idea. By that night, Jean Harlow was shooting a screen test. If her acting didn't exactly blow everyone away, she definitely had a presence. My God, 
exclaimed screenwriter Joseph Moncure March. She's got a shape like a dustpan. The next day, Harlow met with Hughes in his office. When the meeting was over, the baby returned to her mother's car, as if in a fugue state. She said, He hired me, Mommy. He hired me. Hell's Angels would become Jean Harlow's big break, but the movie almost broke her first. Primarily interested in his flying toys, Hughes hired James Whale to direct the dialogue scenes. Harlow was excited to work with Whale, but when she asked him for advice about how she should play the character of Helen, Whale dismissed the character as a pig and refused to say more. When shooting was finished, Harlow was convinced that Hell's Angels was a disaster. So was the rest of Hollywood. But everyone was wrong, thanks in part to a savvy and very expensive publicity blitz ordered by Hughes and designed by publicist Lincoln Korberg, Hell's Angels became the movie phenom of the year, the first action blockbuster of the sound era. As part of the push, Hughes instructed Korberg to brand Harlow with a nickname. Clara Bow, her predecessor as a sex symbol, had been the It Girl. Korberg and Hughes decided that Jean Harlow would be the Platinum Blonde. As a result, Jean Harlow was now incredibly famous, even though nobody thought she could act. But after Hell's Angels, Howard Hughes, with whom Harlow had signed an exclusive contract, didn't have any movies ready to go into production. Harlow didn't work at all for a year, and then at the urging of Paul Byrne, a writer and producer at MGM to whom Harlow had long been confiding her troubles, Hughes began loaning her out to other studios, first MGM and then Columbia, with Hughes pocketing a substantial loan-out fee every time. Her first really substantive role after Hell's Angels came in a film called Gallagher, about a newspaper reporter played by Robert Williams, who ignores his smart career girl colleague played by Loretta Young, and falls under the spell of a rich bitch played by Jean Harlow. Gallagher was directed by Frank Capra, who was maybe exactly what Harlow needed at this point. He directs the film like he knows he's supposed to be exploiting Harlow's assets, but he's sort of too much of a prude to do so in a seriously exploitative way. There's one scene in which the camera tracks backwards to capture Harlow and Williams walking from one room into another. As Harlow's body jiggles freely under her satin gown, Williams trails behind her, literally making jokes about her ass. But Capra shows us not the ass, but Harlow's face, subtly conveying exactly what it feels like to be a woman who hears this kind of thing every day. You've never heard of the movie Gallagher, because by the time it was released in October 1931, it was called Platinum Blonde. Hughes had convinced Columbia to change the title of the picture, even though Loretta Young was the first billed actress and, in the narrative, the romantic victor. But everyone involved seemed to understand that they were at the precipice of a codifying moment. The 1930s on film would be an era of impossible glamour and luxury, presented, in text or subtext, as something regular people could have access to. The same regular people who kept the movie industry going throughout the Depression, even if it meant sacrificing almost everything else. 
Platinum Blonde was the right title for a movie about a good guy, a regular Joe, suckered into the fantasy of sex and wealth, who learns that living that fantasy means selling his soul. As the Platinum Blonde, though, Harlow didn't usually represent the born-into-wealth she embodied in this movie. She would come to represent an intermingled fantasy of security and sex— while maintaining a neighborhood girl feel that made her an accessible icon to millions of women. A lot of those women wanted to look like her, and so in the early 1930s, hair bleach suddenly became a popular thing. Harlow swore publicly that she didn't dye her own hair, but of course she did, and she touched up her natural ash blonde roots every Sunday. Her hairdresser used a combination of peroxide, ammonia, Clorox bleach, and Lux soap flakes. Women all over the country attempted to replicate the results with household bleach, often with disastrous results. Harlow's own hair couldn't take it either, but we'll get to that later. Howard Hughes threw money behind publicizing Harlow as the platinum blonde, but he still hadn't cast his contract player in a second movie. Harlow had two fans in high places who believed she really belonged at the studio that knew best how to supply movies to match a star's potential. And that studio, of course, was MGM. Nick Skank, head of MGM's corporate parent Lowe's, urged Louis B. Mayer to buy Harlow's contract from Hughes. But Mayer wasn't interested. Mayer had no intention of making enough movies about floozies to justify having an actress on his payroll who he didn't believe could do anything else. But Harlow still had Paul Byrne on her side, and he got to work trying to convince Mayer's partner, Irving Thalberg, that MGM had to have Harlow. Eventually, the two-sided attack worked, and Harlow's contract was bought by MGM from Howard Hughes for $30,000 in the spring of 1932. There were two types of stars at MGM. Stars that had been invented by MGM, and stars that had already had an established thing that they did before they came to MGM, who MGM then had to figure out how to make their own. We've seen how this failed, such as in the case of Buster Keaton. But in the case of Gene Harlow, right away, Irving Thalberg rolled the dice by casting Harlow in a film that would exploit her essential talents— while also changing the most famous thing about her. Red-Headed Woman was a popular novel whose main character was, to quote film censorship czar Will Hayes, a common little tart using her body to gain her ends. When MGM decided to turn it into a Gene Harlow vehicle, Paul Byrne hired screenwriter Anita Luz, the author of Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, to turn the protagonist's man-eating into comedy. At her first meeting with Thalberg and Luz, Harlow was asked by the studio executive if she thought she could make an audience laugh. With me or at me, she asked. At you, Thalberg said. And Harlow responded, Why not? People have been laughing at me all my life. Redheaded Woman was a gamble, but it worked. It was a huge hit. And it allowed Harlow to distance herself from the hair that had made her famous in the most literal way possible. And shortly after its release, Harlow married the man who had made it happen for her, 42-year-old MGM producer Paul Byrne.
This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you'd do if you had an extra hour in your day? Go for a run, take a nap, read a book, show up for a friend? I think I would use my extra hour to sleep an hour later, or maybe spend more time at the gym. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you, so you can do more of it. I recently started seeing a new therapist with the explicit goal of trying to figure out what I want in the short term and the long term. I've been in fight-or-flight mode for so long that I've kind of lost track of any goals or ambition that I once had. A therapist can be there for you in times of crisis, even if you have, like me, rather diffuse needs. Either way, a therapist can help you understand the way that you feel and offer strategies for moving forward. If you're thinking of starting therapy, why not give BetterHelp a try? It's entirely online, so you don't have to sit in traffic to get to your appointment. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com YMRT today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Y-M-R-T. It's been said that no one in 1932 understood what Jean Harlow saw in Paul Byrne. We talked a little bit about Byrne last week. He was a powerful player behind the scenes at MGM, and he was also sort of a notorious sad sack, and he had been one for 10 years by the time he married Harlow. Some people believe he was gay and tortured by it. Some people believe he was impotent and tortured by that. He had a habit of falling in love with beautiful women, but for mysterious reasons, not consummating those relationships. Last week, we mentioned the Er Paul Byrne story, about the time when Barbara Lamar rejected him, and he tried to commit suicide by flushing himself down the toilet. It's been said that history repeats itself, the first time as tragedy, and the second time as farce. With Paul Byrne, it was sort of the other way around. Jean Harlow had the most sexual persona of any movie star of her day. But off-screen, what she really craved was friendship and companionship. It's possible that she was drawn to Paul Byrne because he wasn't sexually aggressive. It's probably an apocryphal quote given that Harlow wasn't known to swear much, but she was supposed to have said that Byrne was different because unlike all the other men she knew, quote, he doesn't talk fuck, fuck, fuck all the time. Actress Colleen Moore reported a much more G-rated quote from Harlow about her attraction to Byrne. 
All I want is to be able to sit at Paul's feet and have him educate me. But if these were Harlow's attractions to Byrne, both got old fast. Byrne's educational instincts soon brought out Harlow's inferiority complex. And not only did he not sexually objectify his wife, but according to many reports, he never had sex with her at all. Two months into the Byrne-Harlow marriage, the couple spent the Saturday of Labor Day weekend apart. There are many conflicting stories about this. The official story is that Harlow was expected on the set of the Clark Gable picture Red Dust early Sunday morning, and so she spent the night at her mother's house, which was closer to the MGM lot. Meanwhile, her husband spent the night at home alone, reading a haul of books he had purchased the day before, including a book on the study of glands, which was very trendy in Hollywood at the time, particularly among those who believed that homosexuality and other quote-unquote forms of deviance could be cured, and a 1786 pamphlet on phallus worship called Discourse on the Worship of Priapus. Harlow returned to her marital home that night. The butler overheard husband and wife arguing, and Harlow left, reportedly in tears, and went back to her mother's house. The next day, Paul Byrne was found in his bedroom, curled up on the floor, a fatal gunshot wound in his head, and a thirty-eight revolver in his right hand. Byrne's death would be ruled a suicide, but questions and conspiracy theories circulate to this day. The newspapers reported that he left a note, which read, Dearest dear, unfortunately this is the only way to make good the frightful wrong I have done you and to wipe out my abject humiliation. I love you, Paul. Underneath his name, a final sentence was scrawled. You understand... Last night was only a comedy. But there's reason to believe that the suicide note was not a suicide note at all. The note was found in a guest book, which Byrne kept around the house so that famous visitors like Gary Cooper could leave signatures when they stopped by. The book was not left open to this missive from Paul. It was found when the MGM crisis team arrived on the scene after Byrne's butler found his body. Reports vary, but either MGM publicist Howard Strickling or Louis B. Mayer himself decided to present the guestbook entry as a suicide note and evidence of a tortured man's motive to end his own life. When MGM finally allowed Harlow to be questioned by detectives a full day later, she insisted she had no idea what the note meant. Meanwhile, the studio leaked an autopsy report, which included the detail that Byrne had, quote, a physical condition which left him unfit for matrimony. His genitals were underdeveloped. Two days later, the press figured out that, fit for matrimony or not, Byrne had been legally common-law married to another woman at the time of his marriage to Harlow. Dorothy Millette had been living in the Algonquin Hotel in New York under the name Mrs. Paul Byrne. Apparently, Byrne and Millette had lived together for eight years in the 19-teens and 20s, a fact that they had initially kept secret from Byrne's mother, to whom he was extremely close, 
and who had once vowed to kill herself if she ever learned Byrne was living with a woman. When she did learn of Byrne's cohabitation, Byrne's mother did kill herself. In response, Dorothy had a breakdown. Like something out of a gothic novel, Byrne sent his common-law wife to a sanitarium while he escaped to Hollywood and reinvented himself as the guy behind the guys who ran the most powerful studio in the world. By 1932, Millette had been living in the Algonquin, on Byrne's dime, for years. By five days after Byrne's death, Millette had disappeared. A week after that, her decomposed body was found in the Sacramento River. She had apparently jumped off of a boat. Many people who have looked back on the evidence from the vantage point of many years in the future believe that Dorothy Millette visited Paul Byrne that Sunday night and that Jean Harlow walked in on the two of them together. Some say Harlow already knew about Dorothy's existence, but either way, she left the house in tears. Some people think Dorothy then shot Paul, left a gun in his hand to make it look like a suicide, and then headed off on her own suicide mission. Some people think Dorothy was killed in retaliation for Byrne's murder. But most people think Paul Byrne killed himself. Maybe it was because Dorothy visited him and threatened to sue him for bigamy, which would not only destroy his own life and career, but probably irrevocably harm Harlow's as well. Maybe it was because he had reached the breaking point of hiding his own homosexuality, as some have conjectured, or some other sexual abnormality or challenge. Others believe that all or most of the stuff about Burns' sexual dysfunction was invented by MGM after his death to increase the image of Harlow as a helpless victim and diminish any suspicions that she might have done anything herself to push her husband to suicide. Your business was humming. But now you're falling behind. Your teams are buried in manual work. It's taking forever to close the books. Getting one source of truth is like pulling teeth. If this is you, you should know these three numbers. 36,000, 25, 1. 36,000. That's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. 1. Because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs, key performance indicators, in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist, designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free at netsuite.com slash remember. That's netsuite.com slash remember to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash remember. We may never know what really happened to Paul Byrne. 
But we do know that for Harlow and around MGM, business returned to usual very quickly. A week after Byrne's body was found, a stir-crazy Harlow called Irving Thalberg and begged him to let her get back to work. She needed the distraction. So production resumed on Red Dust, a sexy romp boasting a notorious scene in which Harlow bathes nude in a barrel. Retakes of that scene were shot on Harlow's second day back on set after her husband's death. Since the resumption of shooting, director Victor Fleming had concentrated on long shots in an effort to not capture for posterity the look in the traumatized widow's eyes. But when it was time for her to smolder naked in that barrel and say a line of dialogue describing herself as the gal who drives men mad, Harlow, trooper though she was, just couldn't do it. A cloud of suspicion hung over Harlow for a while. But six weeks after Byrne's death, the film was released and became a massive hit. In the middle of the Depression, Red Dust's gross tripled what the film cost to make, and it earned Harlow the best reviews of her career to date, establishing Harlow and Gable as a gold-minting on-screen team in the process. Harlow was at the peak of her movie stardom, and she was about to make one of her best films, Bombshell, a satire of a movie star not unlike Harlow, although maybe more like Clara Bow. Bombshell is perhaps the quintessential pre-code screwball comedy. It was, arguably, the film that invented the rapid-fire style that would become such a signature of the decade, and it did it out of necessity— In order to ensure that a 160-page script could produce a film of about 90 minutes, Victor Fleming directed scenes to play almost twice as fast as usual. Harlow proved herself not only capable of performing rapid-fire, overlapping dialogue, but she did it without losing a touch of her sex goddess power. Screwball comedies would allow women dressed as sex goddesses to step off their pedestals and compete on the same level as men the level of banter and one-upsmanship and kooky physicality. And Jean Harlow was the first actress to prove herself to be a genius at it. As far as the public was concerned, Harlow had overcome the tragic death of her husband, and she was stronger than ever. Bombshell grossed twice what it cost to make, and it wasn't even Harlow's biggest hit of that year. Dinner at Eight, in which she had a smaller but indelible part as the floozy wife of a boorish rich guy— had been a mega-blockbuster. Certainly, by the time Bombshell was released in the fall of 1933, Harlow was the biggest female star at MGM, if not in Hollywood on the whole. But what no one knew, what even some people close to her didn't fully understand, was that inside, Jean Harlow was slowly falling apart. She fell for a married boxer named Max Bear, and when Bear's wife threatened to name Harlow in divorce proceedings, MGM encouraged Harlow to hastily marry Hal Rawson, the cameraman on many of her films. Harlow and Rawson were married for about seven months, much of which they spent apart. Three weeks after the wedding, Harlow was rushed to the hospital to have an emergency appendectomy. 
after two weeks in the hospital, Harlow's mother insisted that instead of returning to her husband, the baby should continue her convalescence at her mother's house. Harlow never moved back in with Rawson. Mother Jean's insistence on supervising her daughter's recovery was in part a ploy to end her marriage and in part a show of serious concern, although not over Harlow's surgical recovery so much as her alcoholism. After Byrne's death, the baby had started drinking much more heavily, and her mother believed her drinking was making her sick. Actually, the drinking may have obscured other health problems, and Mother Jean's control over her daughter was by no means grounded in a healthy outlook. Jean Harlow Sr. was an intermittent Christian scientist, but above all, she was a capitalist. When Jean gained a little weight, her mother would put her on a diet of a single scoop of cottage cheese, a slice of pineapple, and one shredded carrot per day, which surely could have led to anemia, making the already sickness-prone Harlow even weaker. By 1936, Harlow was starting to look like a casualty of her lifestyle. Her face was puffy and gray, She was always tired, and her belly seemed swollen. And thanks to ten years of weekly bleaching, if not other health issues as well, her hair was starting to fall out in clumps. Harlow's physical changes, her hair loss and diminished luminance, compelled the studio to give her a minor makeover. The platinum blonde was given wigs, and her remaining hair was given a dark blonde rinse. And in the process, she was rebranded the Brownette. Less than ultra-glamorous and certainly anti-trampy roles followed. In the excellent romantic roundelay, Libeled Lady, Harlow played the long-suffering fiancé of Spencer Tracy, while Harlow's then-real-life love, William Powell, wooed rich princess Myrna Loy. Early in her career, Jean Harlow's gowns, though skin-tight enough to make it readily apparent that there was only skin underneath, always seemed to fall open in the right places. She was the queen of side boob. In Libeled Lady, it's co-star Myrna Loy, whose brawlessness seems brazen, while Harlow is suspiciously fussy-looking and often covered up in long sleeves and big furs, although the film's characters still treat her like a dumb blonde until a final scene in which she tells them all off for underestimating her. The new Harlow was more fully on display in Wife vs. Secretary, in which she played the gorgeous but completely morally upstanding clerical assistant to Clark Gable, who is truly in love with wife Myrna Loy and doesn't want to cheat on her. Loy's suspicions build until Harlow, looking more like Ginger Rogers than herself, gives a speech about how lucky Loy is to be married to a decent guy. These more mature films reflected where Harlow wanted to be in her personal life. She was deeply in love with William Powell, but Powell, who was divorced from Carol Lombard, didn't want to get married again and certainly not to Jean Harlow, who he seemed unable to distinguish from her screen persona. "'You don't marry someone half of America wants to sleep with,' he said of his girlfriend, who he'd string along for over three years. Harlow told her friend Dorothy Manners that she felt the romance was one-sided. "'I'm the one who does all the giving.' "'Baby,' Manners said. "'All men do that.' Harlow responded, He's breaking my heart. 
depressed, and still drinking, Harlow was in bad shape, and she got worse in March 1937, when she discovered she needed to have all four wisdom teeth removed. Her mother didn't think she could handle four separate operations, so Mother Jean found a dentist who was willing to extract all four teeth at once. After the third tooth was removed, Harlow's heart stopped beating briefly. She managed to recover enough to report for work on her new movie, Saratoga, but two months after the surgery, she was still draining fluid from her infected mouth. On the set of the film, in late May, she started complaining of abdominal pain. She went home for the weekend to Powell's mansion and spent the weekend in bed with what everyone thought was the flu. On Wednesday, now vomiting and becoming delirious, Jean was finally seen by a doctor who diagnosed a swollen gallbladder and prescribed dextrose injections. A couple of days later, Clark Gable visited and was shocked to see that Harlow looked to be swollen to twice her usual size, and there was a rotting smell emanating from her mouth. A different doctor came over that night and declared that the first doctor had misdiagnosed Harlow. It was her kidneys that were the problem, not her gallbladder. The fluids that had been prescribed by the previous doctor were now killing her. Today, Jean Harlow would benefit from antibiotics, dialysis, or even a kidney transplant. Then, two days after her correct diagnosis, on June 7, 1937, Jean Harlow died. It all happened so fast. Or maybe it had been happening slowly for years. And by the end of it, the baby had stopped fighting. In her last days, a visitor to her bedside told her that she'd get better. Possibly delirious, Harleen said, I don't want to. It seemed impossible that someone so beautiful and so young, whose screen presence was so full of energy and vitality, could have died. Just like that. Maybe that's why rumors persisted that there was something else going on. Some rumors had it that Harlow's internal organs had been damaged in a wedding night beating at the hands of Paul Byrne. Others said her sickness was alcohol-related, which it probably wasn't at its root, although she had mistaken headaches, which could have been warning signs for hangovers, thus letting herself go without treatment that could have saved her. But the most Hollywood rumor was the one that held that Jean Harlow had died from long-term exposure to the chemicals she used every Sunday to get that platinum blonde hair. It's easy to see why this one would appeal. People who love Hollywood love stories about how the things Hollywood people do to become stars end up destroying them. In truth, Jean Harlow's hair bleaching habit had destroyed only her hair. And that hair made her immortal, helping to invent a new lineage of Hollywood star, the blonde sex goddess. In 1937, the year of Harlow's death, an 11-year-old girl named Norma Jean would identify herself as one of Jean Harlow's biggest fans. Within 15 years, Norma Jean would have remade herself in Harlow's image, even visiting Harlow's own hairdresser, 
under the name Marilyn Monroe. But that is a story for another day. Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. This episode was written, narrated, and produced by Karina Longworth. The original episode was edited by Henry Malofsky, and the new package was edited by Sam Dingman. Our research and production assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholtz, and our logo was designed by Teddy Blanks. For more information about this episode and other episodes, please go to our website, you must remember this podcast.com. If you like the show, please share it any way that you can. You can follow us on Twitter at Remember This Pod, find us on Facebook and Instagram, and if you rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, that really helps other people find it. We'll be back next week with another tale from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night. Gene Hollow died the other day. These are the words I heard her sing. Her mother was singing on her bedside to cry. I bleed in my soul, my child is done. Celebrate and save at Ashley's Anniversary Sale. With Hot Buys, your choice of color starting at just $3.99. Ashley Sleep Mattresses starting at $2.50. Plus, receive a free adjustable base with select mattress purchases. And shop top mattress brands like Stearns & Foster, Tempur-Pedic, Purple, and Beautyrest Black with 60-month special financing only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. No minimum purchase required. Minimum monthly payment, down payment, tax, and delivery may be required. See store for details. You know that science solves crimes. Forensic science is exciting, challenging, and most of all, rewarding work. But there is a shortage of qualified individuals in this field. Hi, I'm Terry with Loyola University, Maryland's Forensic Science Department. Loyola is one of the only colleges in the country offering advanced degrees in forensic pattern analysis and biological forensics. Our courses, taught by forensic experts, feature hands-on training and small class sizes. They are based on real crime scene and forensic examiner training programs to ensure you are ready to make a difference. Our programs are open to students from a variety of academic backgrounds because we believe everyone can contribute to solving crimes. So what are you waiting for? Discover the excitement of forensic science at Loyola University, Maryland. Visit loyola.edu forward slash forensic for more information. That's loyola.edu forward slash forensic because you are ready to make a difference. Join one of Loyola University, Maryland's forensic science programs today.